Hi, I'm Andrew and welcome to the Reviewer 2 podcast where we feign expertise while interviewing actual experts. Today I'm here talking to Kate Dully uh, regarding her paper Carbon Dioxide Removal and Biodiversity, a Threat Identification Framework. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me here, Andrew. So you're um, currently um, in Australia near Melbourne, is that correct? Yep, that's right. I'm um, a research fellow at the University of Melbourne in the Climate and Energy College there. Okay, and um, tell us about your position and background. How how long have you been at that institution um, and uh, what's your role there? Um, Well, I guess I've been there about seven years. Most of that was doing my PhD. So the Climate and Energy College was a new college set up at Melbourne Uni um, in 2013. Um, as a as an interdisciplinary PhD college so um, I was one of I was in the first intake there then I've finished my PhD a couple of years ago and now I'm still there doing some research projects and lecturing and various things like that okay and um, what did you do before your PhD did you come straight from um, grad school and go into PhD or did you uh, you know do you have a prior career yeah uh, definitely a prior career I can't barely remember grad school. Um, so I was living in, uh, I'm from Australia, but for 10 years before I started the PhD, I was living in Europe, mostly the UK and then Brussels. And um, actually did a master's over there in London at Imperial College, which was great. And then I was working um, in the NGO policy sector um, <clears throat> on forest and climate policy. And so that's how I ended up in Brussels working on um, EU. So you've got a long, a long background um... I mean, you reminded me a little bit of uh, Duncan McLaren in terms of the route that you've taken because he was doing some um, uh, work on the Greenpeace for quite a long time. So there's a relatively well-trodden path there going from NGOs and then becoming more academically credentials as time goes on. So uh, in- interesting yeah. pathway. Um, <clears throat> and your, your um, plans for the future, are you, are you plans to stay at that institution um, or are you, have you got plans to move and do different things? Or you like to stay in this field? Well, I'd like to stay in Australia. I think that's about as firm as my plans get. It's really hard to have future plans right now, particularly in academic institutions. They've been yeah, pre- yeah. Hit. Apparently, the job market is quite restrictive. So, at the moment, yeah. you want a, a long-term contract or a fixed-term contract? No, no fixed-term contract. Although I have, it's for an ongoing research project that will likely continue next year. So there's, um, and then also because of the policy and geo background I've come from, I have lots of. Um, work options that are sort of more practically policy orientated. So I guess I'd like to stay in the field for sure. I've been working really on a specific set of issues for a good 15 years now, but whether that's within academia or in an NGO or in a more policy orientated think tank or something. What we can see from that is that there's to some extent a revolving door that's reasonably well established between the NGO community and academia. Is that something you you'd broadly agree with? You can, you can see a number of colleagues following similar paths as they move between these kind of institutions? Um, yeah, I can see a number of people who've worked in the NGO world and, and then academia and, and back again. I think that, that research that, NGO advocacy is often really research informed and based. So it's a natural um, partnership. Okay. So um, in terms of the concept of the paper, um, how did you come, how did, how did the concept arise? How did this fit into your career? Um, was it was it your idea or did you pick up someone else's idea and run with it? How did that work? Um, so this paper is part of a special issue organised by C2G, um, the Carnegie Institute people, and there was a. And what was the journal it came out in? 
global policy. Right. So um, I think just the first two papers from the special issue have been published the last few weeks, so there'll be more to come. Um, so there was a call for papers for this special issue about a year ago, last October, and I ignored it. I thought it looked interesting, but I ignored it because I was too busy. And then a colleague of mine, um, Ali, Alicia Harold Kalib, who is one of the co-authors, was really keen to do something. So she convinced me and we threw together an abstract really quickly and submitted the abstract. It was a call for abstracts. And then um, you thought, well, you'll, write, you'll write the paper later. So I think a lot of people think with the call for abstracts that you, you have these papers ready to go, you send the abstract in, and then, yeah. you, um, and then you submit the paper. But a lot of people will just write the abstract in the hope that they'll be able to generate a paper at the end of it. And, um, and off you go. Is that, so that's, it was that second method that you used. Is that correct? Yeah, it was the second method. And I think I've used it other times for conferences and things. And it's quite motivating. I, I, I can confirm that that is a very way, good way of making yourself do work and yeah. to a deadline. Um, it makes yourself fine. do a deadline. So, so talk, talk me through the, um, the author team. How did that come about? Um, well, that was the first part of it. Ali prodded me to submit an abstract and then I was actually hoping we would not be accepted because I was still too busy and then our abstract got accepted. So then we um, pulled in another colleague, um, Anita Talberg. So the three of us had all gone through, our, done our PhDs together at the Climate College um, and we all had <clears throat> worked on CDR governance to some extent and biodiversity as well. Um, so it was a really interesting topic that we were all enthused about and um, once the abstract was accepted we basically um, sat down together and brainstormed what we wanted to do on a big whiteboard and mapped out the paper and how we would do it and um, partitioned up the work between us essentially. Okay um, so when you um, when you started working with this team did you have a you know a fairly fully fledged concept of what the paper would involve or, or did the bulk of it get generated in the, was it basically a result of writing down what you already knew and thought, or was it very much a kind of research on the fly and you developed the whole concept dynamically? How did that happen? Um, we actually developed the whole concept dynamically, I would say. I mean, it's, it's a really simple paper in a lot of ways, but it was interesting. We wrote the abstract and the abstract that we wrote and submitted is very, very much similar to the published one. Um, I was amazed how little it changed. And okay. um, when we sat down, we were just trying to think, well, we want to do this. We want to assess CDR um, interventions in terms of the biodiversity impacts, but how can we do that? And also how can we do that in, you know, just a short paper for um, global policy, sort of a policy orientated um, journal. It's not um, that their style is to be um, very accessible to the public. Um, so how can we do this in a simple but um, compelling way? And so we were just thinking, you know, we started looking through all the different um, CDR assessment papers and then different um, ways of doing risk assessment frameworks, because that's what we started with, but risk assessment's a little more complex. Um, and not initially, I mean, the, probably the bulk of the work for this paper was actually the brainstorming to come up with the framework and the approach of what we were going to do. And when we finally um, had that all sorted out, it was quite easy to do, to write the paper. To write it up. Yeah. I mean, I find that uh, I've worked on quite a few policy papers and the, the, the skill is often knowing what to write the actual process of writing the paper other than the referencing is, is, is quite simple. Um, yeah. I've, I found so, yeah, you're, you're reflecting to some extent my own experiences there. Um, so if you could give me the elevator pitch of the paper, if you were explaining this quickly to a lay person who had no, um, prior knowledge of the discipline, um, how would you summarise the key 
uh, challenges you're trying to address and the key findings of the paper? Well, the challenge we're trying to address is to identify um, what impacts, what further impacts on biodiversity would different um, CDR options have. So I'm assuming the layperson already knows what CDR is in terms of carbon dioxide removal. Um, yeah. And it, I mean, biodiversity assessment and indicators, et cetera, et cetera, can be very complex. So what we decided to do, and we wrote this paper, it was not very long after the IPBES um, Global Assessment Report on Biodiversity came out, and that was a really high impact report. Um, and we thought if we look at the drivers to biodiversity loss and look at how, um, <clears throat> how CDR options might um, increase or increase pressure on those drivers to biodiversity loss, then that's one way to assess impacts on biodiversity. Okay, so, so my understanding of the paper is that what you're trying to do is not to assess biodiversity loss for any CDR options, but to put together a framework to enable assessment of biodiversity loss. Is that, is that broadly what the thrust of the paper is? And if I've misunderstood it, could you explain what I've got wrong? Um, yeah, I guess that's the thrust of the paper, but I'd say we do an initial, initial lit review based assessment. So the idea is to put together a framework to say, well, if you want to understand the impacts of different types of CDR on biodiversity, this, this framework is to look at how they would impact the five drivers to biodiversity loss. There's five specific drivers. Is it going what to... what are those drivers? Um, so land and sea use change is the first one. And, and this is also in order of... Can you give us examples of when you say land change? I mean, are you talking about chopping um, down trees to grow plantations? Or are you talking about changes to, you know, runoff um, that affects land elsewhere? No, so runoff, runoff would probably be pollution. So land okay. and sea use change is actually the largest driver to biodiversity loss. Um, it yep. out, it's the biggest one. And it's generally, um, yep, the most common cause of land use changes, converting natural ecosystems to agriculture. Um, so yep. chopping down forests to grow plants. Um, this is across the board drivers to biodiversity loss, not necessarily driven by CDR. And then okay. the second, actually, I forget the order now. We didn't put them in the order, but um, probably the next one is um, invasive species. Um, so that can be pests and things, but obviously plants, a monoculture tree plantation is an invasive species. So it's a driver to biodiversity loss straight away. Um, then resource extraction, mining, etc. Fishing, it's quite obvious. And then pollution, so runoff from farming or um, pollution in the ocean, um, including noise pollution. So are you concentrating on um, uh, biosphere methodologies for carbon dioxide removal, such as things like um, uh, blue carbon and planting uh, Bex forests? So that's bioenergy with carbon yeah. capture and storage. So, um, yes. Um, so the second thing we did, and climate change, by the way, is the fifth driver to biodiversity loss. So we also assess yeah. the impacts of the CDR options on climate change. Like, do they actually mitigate climate change? Um, so the second thing we did then was categorize CDR options because um, there's lots of ways you can do that. You can have a very long, complex list of all getting down and breaking down into more and more detailed types or often they're um, land use or ocean or, um, or, or often they're classified into natural CDR and technological. Um, but we tried to look at it from a process point of view. What are the main processes that that CDR is using? Because that would help us to then identify what impacts those processes are having. On so, so obviously, obviously with CDR, you've, you've got different technologies, right? And so the, the main ones uh, that you might want to reflect on are you've got various kind of enhanced weathering. So you're spreading some kind of rock 
on land or in the ocean. Okay, mm. then you've got um, direct air capture, which is a you know chemical engineering method where machines suck basically uh, carbon dioxide out of the air. It's you know there are many different technologies and they're quite complex, but fundamentally it's like a big jet engine that sucks in air one one end and blows CO2 depleted air out of the other end, right? Um, and then you've got various biological methods which are based on storage and as a subdivision of that, some which are based on creating energy crops which are burned to create CO2 that's put in the ground. Um, and then you've got various kind of um, uh, peripheral techniques and, and other things around those like ocean alkalinity addition, that are, you know, perhaps, um, uh, you know, not necessarily as uh, clear a distinction between those three divisions. But how the central challenge appears to be comparing apples with oranges, right? So is it mm. that your paper only really looks at one particular type of um, uh, CDR, the biological storage, planting forests, specs, that kind of stuff? Or are you trying to produce a framework that allows you to compare ocean alkalinity addition, for example, with um, a BEX forest? Uh, yeah, the latter. So we're trying to produce a framework so you could compare really different types of CDR, what their impacts on the drivers to biodiversity loss would be. So we did that by categorizing CDR into four process-based categories. So there's a figure in the paper that illustrates this, but it's land use change. So one, so similar to what agriculture does, but changing land use from um, a natural ecosystem state to some other form of use. So that would be afforestation, potentially reforestation comes in there, BEX and biochar. Um, regenerative options are ones that restore land back to its uh, more um, natural state or uh, uh, you, I can, you can go on explaining that for a long time, but it's an ecosystem-based <laughs> sort of class, so, classification. So fundamentally, to repeat that back to you, you've got your, in one case, you're growing trees and then chopping them down, down to put them into becks. In the other one, you're growing a forest where it probably used to stand or may not have previously stood in order to store carbon in the standing biological environment, yeah? Yeah, essentially, but the regenerative one needs to be regenerating nature, basically. So if you planted a monoculture plantation, that would be not regenerative. Regenerative, that would be land use change. Then the other two oh, categories... Okay. So yeah. Can I just ask you to clarify that point then? So if, if, when you're saying land use change, so let's say, for example, you pl plant trees on step, which some people have considered doing. A big you plant trees on what, sorry? Step, yeah? So step grassland, oh, yeah, which is yeah. hard to get trees to grow on, right? Mm -hmm. So is your first category including both bioenergy and carbon capture and storage plantations and just standing forests, but not where the original forest stood. Are you, are you grouping those two things into that first category or not? Yeah, yeah. So we have really, um, we have a simple figure here and really simple definitions. So the first category says land use change, then it says afforestation, planting trees on land that historically have not contained forests. Reforestation, reestablishing through human intervention of land that has previously contained forests. So even that one we say land use change because it's human intervention. And then BECs and biochar also there. And then regenerative ecosystem restoration, soil carbon, agroforestry. Um, then we go on to marine and chemical. So when you were talking about DACs and enhanced weathering of <clears throat> oceans or land and lakes, um, that's all included in chemical, um, as is CCS. So we only uh, assess the land use change part of specs in that category, and we assess the CCS part of DACs or BECs in the chemical I'm, I'm category. Really glad, I'm really glad you cleared this up, because for me, that's a real paradigm shift. 
because I know it might seem obvious from somebody looking to someone looking at biodiversity that a plantation to grow trees and leave them standing is the same as Beck's um, and you're treating them the same way. But I'm approaching this as an engineer and mm -hmm. to me they're chalk and cheese. And so mm -hmm. it's a real um, it's really striking to have you present that categorization. It's completely logical from the framework that you're using, but totally striking for an engineer looking at this because it's absolutely not the way I've categorized. For me, putting a new um, uh, a, 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 any kind of a forestation, be that um, on previously forested land or on um, land which wasn't previously forested would naturally to me seem the same thing but I'm, so I'm glad you've drawn that distinction um, so yeah and that comes out methods. sorry keep going no, no, no sorry fine I was just going to say that comes out further later in the paper because it's really um, when you're looking at how CDR impacts biodiversity it matters a lot how a particular method of CDR is implemented it's not just the the sort of uh, the differences you'd be looking at from an engineering point, what are you going to build or where are you going to put something? It's how things are implemented. And so I, I also really like this categorization. It's very simple, um, but I think it's quite different to what I've seen before. And I think it, it helps to think about the processes that CDR options are, are utilizing and therefore that they're impacting. So let's just return to this Bex issue. So when you're looking at the, um, <coughs> the, you put this Bex in the same category as um, a land use change policy. Um, the, um, the, there's a, a, a distinction to be made here between an afforestation project where it broadly speaking encapsulates its effects locally and a Bex project where it might have um, systemic knock-on effects in the wider energy economy. Okay, so your paper does it touch on or, or address or, or attempt to quantify the impact that BECS might have, for example, on displacing power stations elsewhere on the grid? Or are you just saying, you know, that's not a, a, a box of worms, that, a kind of worms that we want to open? Yeah, I'd say it's not a kind of worms we want to open. We did look, try to look quite broadly at the um, impacts of a CDR option like BECS or, or DAX would be another example in terms of all the input processes. So um, with DAX and enhanced, with enhanced weathering, um, mining with DAX, um, the various um, used chemicals that would be used. Um, with BEX, the transport, the growing and transporting of bioenergy. So we looked very widely at um, all of the inputs required for that CDR option, but not sort of downstream effects such as displacing other energy uses. Yeah, and that, I mean, that's potentially a, a not, not, I wouldn't say a weakness of your paper because you're not, um, it's not, you're not, you're not failing to do it, but you're just clearly demarcating it. But for someone applying yeah. your research, they've got to be aware that that's where the kind of fence of your research is. And then when they step over that fence, there's a whole new world of implications and impacts to discover that requires separate modeling from things like energy systems and stuff like that. What about um, when you're talking about land use change, are you looking at the implications on uh, food crops, for example, because displacing agriculture, uh, if you take, for example, rangeland and then um, put that land into use as a carbon storage forest, then there's several alternatives. So either people just don't eat as much meat and they might eat more veggie burgers and that doesn't take as much land, perhaps. Um, or alternatively, they might cut down virgin forest elsewhere and move the cows onto that land, or they might use more intensive cropping um, so that you can have a, uh, uh, you move from an extensive agricultural system 
to say a feedlot system where they're then mm. growing soya and feeding it to cattle in intensive feedlots you know all of these implications how are you how are you creating any kind of boundary around the implication of that forestry when you're looking at biodiversity impacts because that those kind of um, I wouldn't say they're not long downstream effects. You're not talking about, well, well, we don't know whether it's going to be a solar power station or a nuclear power station replacing this Bex power station. But with um, the agricultural and land um, use impacts for communities, particularly in terms of the food system, this is sort of seen as being the biggest impact, particularly for Bex and any forestry based solution. So how are you tackling those impacts on local communities and the food chain? Um, well, similar to your uh, previous question, we're not looking at that, but I think um, the reason for that is uh, we say very clearly up front in the paper, and, and this is definitely um, something people may disagree with, but this was the driving motivation for the paper, that the first most important thing that must be done before thinking about um, researching or developing any kind of CDR option is what are its impacts on the drivers of biodiversity. And that includes um, climate change. Now, um, in the case of Bex, the impacts are overwhelmingly all negative. Um, and so based on, if you, like if you took this assessment as a starting point, if you agreed with me on the um, overriding importance of maintaining by the little biodiversity we have left, and then, then your result would be you wouldn't implement Bex, so you wouldn't have those downward effects on the food chain. Um, and on people's access to food and that sort of thing. That's the only answer I can give there. But certainly, I mean, this okay, is okay, a, let, let a, me let me challenge that because obviously you've thought about this a lot. But you know, a, a, an instant reaction that I have, and I guess a lot of other people will be um, having also listening to this, mm -hmm. is thinking, well, you know, Bex is going to save the world. You know, the, we you know we we need to to save the fluffy bunny rabbits, and the only way we can do this is with Bex because that's what the IPCC has been considering as its you know, main way of getting carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, which we all agree we have to do. So, you know, how can Bex be this you know, terrible biodiversity monster? We thought it was, you know, the biodiversity saviour. Uh, definitely not. So uh, I think, I mean, this is another area of huge interest to me that I've written a paper a little bit about, but would like to write more about, is the use of um, BEX in models or the use of, of CDR in general. Um, and so, and I find it incredibly frustrating. I've come across it a couple of times as a reviewer and I always totally hammer it when people say something like, we need X so gigagons. you were a reviewer too, that's good. <laughs> yeah, um, we need X gigatons of BEX to meet um, 1.5 or 2 degree or whatever pathway um, according to, you know, IPCC 1.5 report or according to all these models included in the IPCC. And it's like, because their model does not make it so, and the modelers will be the first person, people to tell you that. Um, now, Beck, the... And, and it's changing. Uh, I think next generation models will ch change a tiny, tiny bit this in the 1.5. This is Jane, Jane, Jane Flegel and Steve yeah. Rainer's socio-technical imaginaries, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's uh, to some degree what my um, PhD topic was in. And so um, it's not a given fact that we need that scale of, firstly, that we need that scale of CDR for 1.5 or 2 degree pathway because it's in the models. Secondly, it's not a fact that we need to do Because obviously we can mitigate more, right? And the more that we, we could mitigate, mitigate the less more. We need. And we've had a yeah. few papers that showed specifically that. And then secondly, it's certainly not a, a fact that we would need to deliver all that CDR via BEX because BEX is in the models because it's a convenient thing to model. That's the reason. Yeah, I understand. So let me let me paraphrase what I think you've told me. 
So what you're saying is that BEX has overwhelmingly negative local impacts on biodiversity. Um, there are clear biodiversity benefits from mitigating or, or from reducing climate change through a combination of mitigation CDR. I don't want to confuse the word mitigation there. Um, um, but what your paper doesn't do is it doesn't look at the balance between the global effects and the local effects. What you're doing is you're providing a framework for the immediate and local impacts of um, BEX or, or on a forestation specifically, um, but also within the context of a, a, a bunch of other technologies with your referencing BEX specifically because it's um, seen as being so prominent in the, in, in the discourse. Is that, is that a fair summary of your paper? Uh, I think it's reasonably fair. I would probably tweak it a little bit in terms of saying, um, as I said, the fifth driver to biodiversity loss is climate change. So that's a global impact and, and we assess that or we include that in our framework and we're given it in. So the third figure is what I would call an indicative assessment that based on a literature review of how you could use this framework. Um, and some of the CDR options score quite badly on climate mitigation. They don't necessarily help to mitigate climate change. Um, and then the other impacts we look at, uh, I guess they're local, but they're, they can, you know, supply chains and mining and that kind of thing, um, pollution in the ocean, um, ocean upwelling, ocean fertilization, and they're potentially quite widespread effects. So, so I think localized is a little bit too constraining on how these things impact biodiversity. I get what you're saying. And in terms of this is a framework development paper as opposed to a quantitative analysis paper. So you're not mm. going through every single technique and giving a canonical view of what its biodiversity impacts actually are. What you're doing is prevent it, presenting the system of which other authors might come and apply in various different ways to, to making these comparisons and doing an environmental impact assessment. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Okay. So you said that you're, you said earlier that Beck's, um, you know, had, had a very negative effect. Um, I'm just trying to drill down on that because you said that you've got these, this balance here between the wider climate change effects and then you've got the local effects of BEX. Um, so you, you've, you've obviously listed a number of um, effects that might occur on a local scale from BEX, but you've, you, you've implied that the end result is negative. Now, how can you be sure that the end result is negative for a technology like BEX? Is it just because it has so many downsides, that's what you expect? Or are you confident for some reason that BEX cannot do enough to um, assist the global environmental um, impact of climate change to offset its profound local environmental impact? Mm -hmm. um, so I could answer that two ways. The first is constrained to what we did in this paper. <laughs> And secondly, things about BEX that we didn't, that are outside what we considered in this paper. But in terms of this paper, it's, it's what you said first, it's just there's so many downsides. So for each um, technology, so for BEX, we've gone through the five um, drivers to biodiversity loss and we've gone through the literature and noted whether there's a positive or negative impact or perhaps no impact or perhaps negative or positive depending on how it's implemented. Um, so essentially BEX was all negative impacts except potentially positive impact on climate change. Like if implemented right, it could mitigate climate change. But that's not okay. a guarantee. I mean, that, that's, to some extent, not, that's to some extent not unexpected. So can you give me an example of a climate, um, uh, of a CDR technology which would have a positive impact? Because I wouldn't really expect there to be too many positive impacts. I mean, I guess if you're restoring natural ecosystems, obviously you've got biodiversity benefits in that. If you take a clear-cut forest, you, re you replant it, the um, chirping birds and fluffy bunny rabbits will return to that forest, and that, that's a, a net benefit. But for something like um, 
direct air capture. I can't see how direct air capture has any environmental benefits other than removing carbon dioxide. So it, it, mm. it, is, it, is it only the restoration-based approaches that have benefits or what? Um, well, firstly, rabbits are invasive species in Australia. So <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's a bad example. They're, they're, one Australia, of the, right? they're one of the drivers of biodiversity loss. Um, yeah, no, you've, we hate you've... bunny rabbits. We are the show <laughs> who hate bunny rabbits, right? We, yeah, we really do over here. They're a, they're a thorn in our side. Um, anyway, so we presented this little visual um, chart in the paper. So I'm just having a look at it to answer your question. I'm seeing which ones and we made it friend, colorblind friendly, which I find confusing because it's blue. Blue is good instead of green. Uh, we did okay. blue and red instead of green and red. Um, so basically the, the answer is yes, overwhelmingly only the regenerative options had a positive effect on biodiversity. The all other CDR options, because they um, involve reef source instruction, they involve land use, they involve pollution, um, are going to negatively impact biodiversity. And there's, <clears throat> I can go, I could go into that in a bit more detail. And there's a few that, um, uh, like enhanced weathering in the ocean, but I think actually particularly enhanced weathering on land. Where is that? That's in chemical. On land and lakes. Um, oh, they both were, like they could be reasonable options. So we have a long discussion about the governance of options because many of them depended on how they were implemented. So then the governance becomes very important. The implementation is key to make sure that you minimize any negative impacts on biodiversity and maximize positive ones. Whereas some options that just wasn't an option, they were just going to be negative. Um, but there's just this line in the conclusion that for me sums up what we're trying to say here. So we say the IPBES warns, that's the um, panel, panel on biodiversity and ecosystem services, that the negative trends in biodiversity and ecosystem function are protected, projected to continue or worsen and that nature-friendly climate adaptation and mitigation will play important roles in the future. Our threat identification exercise suggests that on the whole, reliance on CDR does not represent a nature-friendly mitigation strategy. So that's the point, CDR is putting more pressure again on our planet. So we, we mine and extract fossil fuels, we burn them, we put them in the atmosphere, bringing them back down, however we do it, is just adding more pressure to biodiversity loss, which is a crisis on the scale of the climate crisis as well. So we yeah, should I be- I fully agree, yeah. Taking it's, uh, a step, you know, it's a, it's a, everyone's it's a, focused on climate, but biodiversity is you know, such, a big, a big, such a big threat globally. Um, it's such a big threat. something like 70% of all um, bird and mammal species, uh, bird and uh, vertebrate species over the last um, uh, 50 years or so. So it's a huge, huge losses. And I it's huge. fully agree with you. This, uh, and the uh, IPBES assessment published last year was scary. People who haven't read it, actually go and get it and read the summary for policymakers and then read the chapters. It's, it's really terrifying. And so we wrote this after having just read that. And um, it's really a call to say CDR, I mean, everything we do, obviously agriculture impacts biodiversity. Um, uh, consumerism impacts biodiversity, but CDR is um, another thing we're adding to that list of things humans do that are going to drive um, biodiversity loss. And so this is another call to step back and say, well, um, not emitting fossil fuels in the first place is a lot less harmful than pulling any back out of the atmosphere. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Can I, can I just ask you to comment on one of the technologies that we didn't discuss much? So you, you're saying that, that broadly speaking, the ecosystem restorations have positive biodiversity benefits and all of the other techniques have negative biodiversity benefits. The one that I would have thought would potentially be quite beneficial is um, some form of ocean alkalinity addition because 
the biodiversity impacts of acidification are pretty significant. So um, does, does restoration in that regard not yield a positive result or what? Um, yeah, it's no. So one of the things with this paper, um, we covered uh, a lot of these sort of impact papers will focus only on land-based CDR. So we wanted to bring them all in. We bring in the marine as well. But I'm not the oceans um, expert. That was Ali, who, um, and we re really all had complementary knowledge. So it was really helpful for writing the paper. But Ali wrote the oceans one and I was quite, um, I learned a lot myself. I also thought what you just said, um, I was quite surprised how harmful most of the marine CDR options were. So ocean fertilization. Including alkalinity addition. So alkalinity addition would be, we'd be calling that ocean fertilization, wouldn't we? Uh, no, they're two different technologies. So ocean fertilization mm -hmm. is where you add either a micronutrient like iron, um, uh, yeah. iron ion, to be clear. Um, and oh, enhanced weathering in the ocean would be alkalinity addition then. Uh, that's that's a way of doing it, but there are electrochemical methods as well. So um, what you look to do is that obviously the, the ocean is becoming more acid because CO2 dissolves in water um, and it makes something a little bit like fizzy mineral water that's acid. That's what takes tangy um, and the, uh, that the pH uh, drops. And as the pH drops, it has a wide variety of ocean um, uh, biodiversity impacts, such as dissolving the shells of marine animals, um, uh, and, and a range of other things. So by add, adding alkalinity, one would imagine that you are restoring that ecosystem to something much more closely akin to a natural state than would be the case before. So I'm a little surprised that your analysis didn't show that that was happening. So, so what it showed, so we, we covered that only in the sense of enhanced weathering in the ocean. Um, and I actually, as I just said before, enhanced weathering on land and lakes and on and in the ocean actually came up better than um, many. So they weren't the worst yeah. ones. And that was because of the potential to um, improve the pH of as, um, of the ocean or of um, lakes that have also um, too okay. acidic. And did you look at any electrochemistry? This is Greg Rouse. Um, uh, some other people have worked on that. So you're, you're, you're um, and the bio rock. Um, uh, proposal where you're making um, uh, electrical, you're using electricity to remove um, basically acid or acid related materials like chlorine from the ocean. Um, and as a result, you're in, increasing the concentration of alkalinity related ions and substances in, in the ocean. Did you, did you look at that electrochemistry approach or not? No, we didn't look at that. We looked at um, the chemical approaches were direct air capture and enhanced weathering and CCS. Okay. And so we looked Fine. at a few of the different chemicals used for direct air capture, a few of the different processes, but not what you just outlined, no. Okay, cool. Um, so I think I've got a, a, a reasonable idea of the, um, the scope and limitations and achievements of the paper. Um, is there anything that you, that you feel that we haven't discussed that, that um, is relevant and you know is there a big plank of your work that we've yet to touch on um so i think we've we have covered the paper pretty well as i've said multiple times now, it was really driven by um wanting to draw attention to uh, biodiversity assessments i think that um i guess the other relevant thing to say would be um the the what i've noticed i've been following the climate negotiations closely for 15 years 
and um, among climate negotiations, but also the IPCC, I feel like the um, biodiversity community is really missing from that. And that's quite different if you go to the CBD and the IPES. Um, it's a different community of people, and so there needs to be much more cross Yeah, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more. If you've got two huge earth system crises coming down the tracks at you, then mm -hmm. focusing only on one or focusing on them completely separately is a crass way of... Um, of organising, uh, you know, a political and environmental movement. You have to look at them in, in synergy. And this is why mm. myself and Claire, the other presenter of Review of Two podcast, uh, are, are, you know, so scathing and so negative about the uh, repeated uh, and, and um, uh, seemingly unkillable focus on Bex that has been um, apparent and driving the CDR field for a decade or so. Now, I think when you talk to a lot of people in this field, they will acknowledge that these limitations, as you so rightly and, and capably point out in the paper, but the, um, the, the challenge is that the political system doesn't appear to have woken up and smelled the coffee in this regard. And, and so there's a huge um, gulf between the problems that we know are um, inherent in Bex, and you've, your paper has, uh, has gone some way to systematise that knowledge, um, and what the politicians are you know, regarding as being a, a credible solution for the future um so yeah i think that's uh, it's very useful to, to have you and others you know, continue to highlight um these challenges so i want to talk to you a bit um just now we might come back to a couple of issues in the paper later but just now uh, about the you know the practical journey so you obviously the choice of journey with a uh, journal was set because you responded to call for papers um, but in terms of the peer review, um, how, how did you find the submission process? Um, did you struggle to meet length limits? Did you have big challenges in peer review? Um, did you find it difficult to get your co-authors to agree um, over the conclusions of the paper? Talk to me about the practical steps, because you know, this is something most people don't cover, but we do, um, mm -hmm. because academics, you know, frankly, spend a lot of their time trying to get papers through and trying to get jobs. So I think it's really, really important to speak to authors about this kind of stuff. Yeah, for sure. Um, this paper was relatively straightforward in terms of all that, although quite slow. So we submitted it, um, I'm pretty sure it was the start of October 2019, and it's just been published. And there was um, one round of peer oh, review. Oh, yeah, wow. I'm oh, I thought I'm calling, <laughs> I'm calling that slow. <laughs> um, I've had much faster ones. But, I've had uh, conference abstracts that have taken longer than that to get published. <laughs> yeah, I might have been lucky a few times early on or something because um, things are slowing down. But uh, so it was a pretty straightforward peer review process. We had two reviewers come back with a fairly... Um, um, thorough but not not devastating list of um, questions and queries and things that we changed and I think one of the things that made this paper really easy is the three authors working on it we um, know each other quite well we've been working together for years and so we didn't have disagreements we, we already um, were agreed on what the central message of the paper we wanted to get out was and so there were certainly no disagreements. Well, that's, a, that's a really interesting point I mean I, I personally um, seek out people who I disagree with to work with mm -hmm. because I find that the process of writing although it's much more of a struggle um, you end up with a paper which comes out of the blocks much more fully tested if you are working with people who have broadly opposite um, political opinions to you so I'm working on a paper at the moment about um, what you might call kind of 
green finger geoengineering so people going off and doing it on their own without reference to states right mm-hmm. um and i've started working on that paper with somebody who has broadly speaking diametrically opposed views to me o- on that did, did you find that there was a certain sort of groupthink risk uh, you know creative stifling um that comes um, from that yeah uh, absolutely and I, I couldn't agree with you more about working with people um with opposite views or who you disagree with and i've done that a number of times as well and i think it's much much more difficult but you do come out with a better paper or a more robust paper in terms of covering the different things. So some of the criticisms you made of the paper, maybe if someone who, who thought quite differently had worked on it, we would have covered some of those things off. But at the same time with this paper, um, we had very complementary skill sets. So I don't know a lot about ocean geoengineering at all. And Ali doesn't know a lot about land use change and, and um, CDR there. Um, so but the, the great thing about academia is that even when your paper's published, you can still get brownie points for um, slagging it off in um, uh, future work. So you can, um, yeah, you can. Uh, I, I can say, um, you know, uh, uh, Lockley 2019 was a terrible paper and Lockley was an idiot and he didn't know what he was talking about. And uh, it, we're all good. <laughs> um, and yeah. uh, no one bats an eyelid about that. Whereas in pretty much any other field of work, that would get you fired. So... Well, the joys of academia, you can always extend yeah. your own work by saying it was terrible. Well, um, knowledge keeps evolving. Um, but we were able to cover a really broad range here in a short paper, and um, it's not a very research-intensive paper because because of the team that we worked together on it. So that was really good. So, so what's the future journey? I mean, how are you going to move from this to a more quantitative framework? How, how would someone take this work forward? Um, We talk a little bit about that in the discussion in terms of um, governance frameworks and essentially um, the need for very context-based localised assessments. Um, So I think in terms of how would someone take that forward, that's the first answer. You need to be starting with um, a question in front of you um, of, of a particular CDR project and potential implementation and place. And then I think looking back at the um, drivers to biodiversity loss, and then you could make them specific to that locality um, would be a very good way so to the, do the, uh, That's the equivalent of downscaling the climate model. You're, 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 you're talking about your overarching framework, assessing these different um, impact categories, but then working out whether that means changes to beetles or bugs or fungi or whatever in that area, because that's what you care about for that locality, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah. fine. So um, are you planning to take this work uh, forward or not? Uh, no, I don't think at this stage any of us are uh, working further on this um, in, in that sense. Um, I guess academia is also a bit opportunistic, but we're all working on different research projects now that yeah. um, are slightly different. So what's the journey um, for you in the future? Obviously, you, you talked about the career issues and stuff earlier on, but uh, what are your research priorities at the moment? Um, so what's really interesting to me at the moment is the whole nature-based solutions um, hysteria perhaps i'm not sure what to refer to it as yeah i was going to speak about i've been racking my brains for the last five or ten minutes trying to think what was that question i was going to ask her and Ah. you conveniently dumped it on my lap so the (laughs) um the trillion trees nonsense ah the trillion trees i mean even trump supports the trillion trees so we have to. it can't be good in my view if that's happened right yeah 
Absolutely. So um, just to, for people who are unfamiliar with that, you might want to give um, a bit of an intro because I, I saw the Trillion Trees paper get um, launched um, at mm. um, the Gordon Research Conference and I saw it, uh, it, it wasn't actually the principal author, but he's the author who's probably got the most, the most public criticism, uh, which is Thomas Crowther, if I recall correctly. And mm-hmm. he was talking about this paper and it was, everyone's rather wowed at it uh, by it at the time. Um, but do you want to give us a bit of an intro into you know, just what an absolute car crash debacle that has turned into, because it really is quite an entertaining story. Yeah, um, well, I can, I I will, but it's not entirely focused on that paper. That paper's part of the story from my perspective. So um, it might be different to how you tell the story. There's a bigger car crash at stake. Well, I'd like to hear more about it. It's kind of part part of a bigger car crash or journey. But um, I mean, the way I see it is that this is actually all a reaction to this complete reliance of IAM models on BECS. So people working on, um, like I've worked for 15 years on um, forest governance, basically, has been my policy field. And everybody else I know in the forest governance policy field or biodiversity or um, that sort of thing, it was just horrified at the scale of land use change proposed by models in BECS. Like it's, it's absolute insanity when you um, can, can really um, more concretely... Not, I would just summarise it as being neither deliverable nor desirable. Yeah, exactly. So as a response to Bex, everyone started going, um, me included, well, what could we do instead to pull carbon back into the land that would be good for land and biodiversity and forests, etc. And so then you start getting all these nature-based solutions. You've got the Griscom paper, which was, do you know that one? Natural Climate Solutions 2017. So that uh, had a massive impact, that paper. So that is essentially put out by TNC, the Nature Conservancy. Um, Bronson Griscom was the lead author, and that was called Natural Climate Solutions. And I think that really put natural climate solutions on the policy map. Everyone was talking about it after that. Um, then there were a few more papers. Um, and then there was the Baston paper, Trillion Trees paper, I call it. Although I think so was it the was Natural Wisconsin. Climate Solutions paper as awful as the Baston paper or not? Uh, no, but I mean, I had lots of criticisms of it, but in a nutshell, no, in the way it was interpreted, it wasn't. It was, um, it has something like 20 land use pathways in it um, across agriculture, coastal marine habitats and forests. And they assess them based on with um, biodiversity and um, social safeguard constraints. And, uh, but the, 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 um, it's, it's a pretty shallow analysis of, of those constraints. And, um, and it was also Which, uh, um, those of those re- uh, listeners who are outside of academic say academia saying something's a shallow analysis is how an academic calls in an airstrike on another <laughs> academic. <laughs> <laughs> criticism is very polite, but that's that's quite um, that's quite scathing criticism, right? Uh, maybe. I mean, uh, this paper here that I'm presenting is to some degree a shallow analysis because it's a framework paper. We're not actually doing the assessment. Oh, but you've called it a framework paper, so it's no longer a shallow analysis. Okay. Well, thank you. Right? Thank you for redeeming me. <laughs> <laughs> there's, yeah, yeah, there's wasn't exactly. a framework paper. There's was like a benchmark paper. So um, anyway, there's certainly some criticisms with it. It also used a weak two-degree pathway, like a pre-Paris two-degree pathway, I would say and called it 1.5. But it put this whole idea of natural climate solutions on the map. Um, Some of them were good and some of them were not so good. Then um, a few papers later, a few years later, you get the Baston paper, which is this Trillion Trees paper. And they did a pretty detailed mapping exercise of where you would restore all these trees. And I actually think, uh, so they they made a couple of mistakes. To be clear, the the, the mapping included 
planting the trees in people's houses and on top of their heads and um, where their cows <laughs> so, are grazing. So they actually had, um, I won't get the numbers exactly right, but they had, they had something like 970 million hectares. So close to um, a billion hectares of, um, of reforestation. The Griscom paper had around 600 million hectares of reforestation. And um, I've done similar pathways, published in a, a global um, renewable energy assessment thing, and we put land use pathways in it. And we use 350 million hectares of reforestation because that's the bond challenge. That's this international challenge that countries are trying to meet yeah. to reforest. Um, now, that was the only land use change we had. We tried to minimise land use change, and I think that's a really important principle. Other than that, we restored ecosystems or agroforestry. So you're, so you're separating again, using your framework, land use change from ecosystem restoration, yeah? Yes, an and that's really, to... it is such an important distinction that hardly ever gets made. Um, and the Baston paper, it was all, it wasn't necessarily all land use change. It was actually... Um, it was heavily criticised and for a couple of reasons, but it was a, a more thorough paper than I think people realise in terms of um, the mapping was quite thorough. Okay, they put forests everywhere, but there weren't actually forests. If you read the detail of the paper, there were shrubs. So if you look at the map, it's like, oh my God, they've reforested the Sahara. But um, they were talking about sort of sparse shrubbery. Um, they just yeah. included everything. Okay. Um, but the big mistake they made was the sort of headline announcement that this is the, um, I can't remember exactly how it was framed, but this is the greatest thing we can do to stop climate change. Is to plant exactly. Trees. And I, I mean, that, that just jumped out at me when I, when I read the abstract of that paper. It's like, yeah, you're claiming that this solution is one. Is it, so I find, you know, the scientific community is really prone to this. They understand their little bit really well and yeah. they don't, and they, 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 people are prone to conflating a knowledge of a sliver of an academic field with being able to appraise the context properly. And you're quite right to point out that in, in, in the specific example of that Bastin paper, they didn't, they didn't analyze anything else, but they put in their abstract, this is the best. And it's like, well, you just cannot draw that. There, there is no supporting evidence in your paper for that because you're, you're saying that your solution is good by that analysis, which other people have heavily criticised. But the idea that you can then take that and, and make a generalised conclusion about a whole raft of, of, of solutions is, is, is just entirely um, uh, baseless. And, and mm. that, got, that was panned. I mean, I, I, I raised that criticism with the authors almost immediately. It came out. Um, it got absolutely panned. And they eventually retract or amended or whatever. They, they amended that, that statement. But I think a lot of it is... Um whatever incentives are driving academics, um, publicity being one. So that paper was in the New York Times, the Washington Post. It was plastered yeah. over the world media because I, I of that agree. line. And, and that's yeah. why they put that line in there. Um, maybe yeah, and I, I, think the, the, I think you're absolutely hitting the nail on the head there. Um, the, 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 the problem I have is that the academia has a, an incentive structure which um, has a, an almost... Um, Machiavellian reward for people who are glory seekers and if, if people mm. are you know not conducting the scientific process honestly and I'm, I'm making a general comment rather than talking about trillion trees specifically here but if people yeah. are another example being cold fusion which was you know absolutely sensational claims and media coverage around it um, about uh, 30 years ago 20 30 years ago and and, and came to nothing um, so you know, that, that kind of thing is, is heavily rewarded for people who want to take huge risks. Uh, there was another one about creating, turning cells back into 
um, pluripotent stem cells by giving them an acid wash. Again, you know, absolutely remarkable, um, astonishing claim. Got all over the world's media and then got busted up very, very promptly by a bunch of people who actually knew what they're talking about. So there, there are all these sort of toxic, um, I hate the word toxic, but I'll use it in this context, these toxic reward systems that encourage really bad behaviour. Um, but I think one of the other things that came out of that, and I, I think the, 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 the natural climate solutions as a concept, not as in terms of the title of the paper that you're using it, there's a real, because it's so appealing, there, you know, the, the, the rewards and incentives are quite concentrated for people who, who can get this kind of thing into the media and present it in a way. So I, I think that, that, that this, this field almost tends to reward bad behaviour um, in, a, in a really dangerous fashion. And I think that I, I'm very sceptical of what I call glamour mags, um, you know, high impact, um, splashy journals. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the things that I, that I find very concerning is when you get ambitious um, researchers um, often, uh, you know, early to mid career who, who, who use these very prestigious or seemingly prestigious journals with a lot of, um, um, impact to, to promote these outlandish claims. I, I, I find it very concerning and I've never submitted to nature or science or PNAS or any of those groups of journals at all, uh, for any of my work. Um, you know, my, one of my feelings on that is that, that the scrutiny available in more, more niche and minor journals tends to be a lot more specific. Do you think that the, you know, to some extent it's discussing trillion trees specifically, but, but more generally, um, do, do you think that there is an issue with the quality of scrutiny in the high-profile pro, high generalist journals, particularly in the field of these natural climate solutions? Do you think that's a problem or do you think that was just um... a one-off? Uh, no, I do. In fact, I'd say at least in the field of, of CDR, um, like beyond natural climate solutions to CDR, but probably beyond that to anything to do with climate mitigation in high profile journals, because it's so political the the, the questions and issues at stake in how we respond to climate change is so political. And the high profile journals, I don't feel are, are well equipped to deal with nuanced political questions very well. physical sciences and I've reviewed a paper I reviewed a paper for nature climate change right I said this is an interesting good paper but it's it's absolutely not for a high profile journal it's for a niche journal it's it's bringing together unusual ideas that may be good or maybe bad but anyway it just needs more development and more passage through the academic community before I feel like it needs to be a solidified um, consensus built position or argument before it comes in a high profile journal um yeah and and I, I, anyway I think they you're, published you're, it anyway <laughs> didn't they didn't listen to review too no. so <laughs> just, just to summarize it what you're saying is that there's a kind of perfect storm of um uh, of of incentives for bad behavior plus a limited capacity to appraise that that results in these um you know horrible um zombie papers coming through the process um that occasionally uh you know turn a field on its head when they really really shouldn't be doing that is that a fair reflection it, it is and this isn't something i'd actually thought about a lot before this 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 is what our, where our conversation has led to but I, I do think that and i've seen a few really damaging papers that turn well, I, think I think it's in your in your field specifically natural climate solutions this is a, a a real risk and the trillion trees is a great example so i'm really glad that you've spoken about it. and so one of the things that we do like to focus on this podcast you know it's the review of two podcasts it's about the publication process as much as about as it is about the contents of the paper 
And I think it's really valuable to discuss this because I hope other people listening will be more sceptical of prestigious papers and will be more cautious and circumspect about where they choose to submit as a result of our conversation because I think, you know, we're both broadly on the same page here. So mm-hmm. um, I'm going to draw this to a close. So uh, thanking you for coming on the show, just to review where I think we've got to, you've, you've presented a very interesting framework for reviewing uh, disparate um, solutions to climate change based on carbon dioxide removal and that has a lot of potential for future development and quantification a couple of areas where this paper potentially would benefit from improvement and extension is to uh, have a more coherent interface with the downstream effects be that on agricultural energy systems and also Mm -hmm. to look at some of the perhaps more niche techniques that have particular challenges from a biodiversity point of view in terms of quantifying restoration so very much looking forward to your revise and resubmit of your paper um, uh, or uh, in the real world uh, potential future work from yourself or other authors uh, taking your ideas and and bringing them forward and just want to summarize by thanking you very much for coming on the show and encouraging others to read your paper okay well thank you very much for having me Andrew it was a really interesting conversation thank you goodbye bye